All right, so turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel. We're going to be in chapter 18 as we continue our look into David's life. And as you turn there, finish this statement with me. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Now, this all-too-familiar saying highlights the danger of putting ourselves in positions when people wound us in various ways again and again. And we wonder why we're hurt again, right? You know, the first time it's like, oh, that, that stung. And then it happens again and again and again, and we wonder, why does this keep happening? Now, I don't think this modern proverb, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me, existed when David was alive in the world that he lived in. Um, but the maxim of the proverb is true. I bring this up because in our passage this morning, we continue this downward trajectory that King Saul is on, and as a result, the trajectory of Saul's actions that are focused and purposed on David. I mean, if I were David, I would have learned my lesson the first time the king hurled a spear at me, and we talked about that last week. If you remember in 1 Samuel 16, after David was anointed, the Spirit of the Lord had left Saul, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David. And as the Spirit of the Lord was off of King Saul, King Saul was afflicted with a troubling spirit that was given by the Lord. And he had fits of rage and madness. And his court said, we know a guy who can play music well. He's a skillful musician. And he's a shepherd. And so Saul's like, bring him to me. So David comes into his court. He plays his harp. And Saul's spirit is soothed. And as David became the, a member of King Saul's court, Every time Saul was given to these fits of rage, Saul, or David would be called to play his music and calm him down. And last week, we looked that in one of these situations when David was playing, King Saul's spirit was still disturbed. And we read in verse 10, Saul raved in the midst of the house, and while David was playing the harp with his hand as usual, And a spear was in Saul's hand. Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped from his presence twice. So that's the first time. But this morning, we're going to read another incident of King Saul reacting to David in an aggressively um, physical way. We see that Saul is devising plans. He's scheming. He's planning for ways that he can get rid of David. Now, have you you ever faced similar trouble as David? Listen, I'm not talking about someone who is actively trying to kill you. If that's the case, please call the authorities. Like, no joke. But I'm talking about Someone who seems to have it in for you. Around every corner, they're trying to trip you up so that you fall on your face. They just seem to be a constant 
source of anxiety and trouble and displeasure in your life. I can remember a time in my early ministry um, in our first church, and, and I've shared this story before, but um, there was a person in our first church that disagreed with the decision that, that we were making as a church, and so this person decided to uh, go with a smear campaign of me in the community. And we lived in this little community. Uh, a few hundred people lived in the, the area. There was a little post office that we walked to to grab our mail. And um, I remember being in the post office one day and someone that I never met came up to me and started talking to me about this situation in, in a negative uh, light. And I was just like, first of all, I was like, who are you? <laughs> and then I came to find out through... Uh, listening to this person, that the person that disagreed with us was actively around every corner, as many people would listen, talking negatively about myself and the church. And it wasn't like we were changing the doctrine of the church. We were implementing background checks for our children's ministry, and they didn't like it. This went on for months and months. The most difficult thing was not to engage this person in anger. I mean, I, I, I still think about the situation sometimes and just become very frustrated of, like, why is this happening? Why was this so? But I learned a valuable lesson, the lesson of Proverbs 17, verses 27 and 28. He who restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cold spirit is a man of understanding. Even a fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is considered prudent. And so, I learned and am learning the the value of that proverb. But if you've ever been in a situation where you feel like you're in the crosshairs of someone for whatever reason... It can just seem extremely overwhelming. This morning, as we consider the trouble that David was facing, and more personally, those seasons of life when he was facing similar trouble, I'm praying that you see the wisdom that David exercised. In the midst of the adversity, and I pray that you also learn how to navigate the trouble we face so that God would be glorified. So we're going to look at the text together, and as we wrap up, I want to draw some conclusions uh, and some things that we observe that might be helpful for us. Um, So if you have your Bibles, let's turn to 1 Samuel 18. I want to begin reading in verses 17 through the end of the chapter. Then Saul said to David, here is my older daughter Merib. I will give her to you as a wife. Only be a valiant man for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, my, sh- my hand shall not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. But David said to Saul, who am I and what is my life for my father's family in Israel that I should be the king's son-in-law? So it came about at the time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, that she was given to Idril, the Maho- Maholathite, for a wife. Now Michael, Saul's daughter, loved David. When they told Saul, the thing was agreeable to him. Saul thought, I will give her to him that she may become a snare to him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. 
Therefore, therefore Saul said to David for a second time, you may be my son-in-law today. Then Saul commanded his servants, speak to David secretly, saying, behold, the king delights in you, and all his servants love you. Now, therefore, become the king's son-in-law. So Saul's servants spoke these words to David. But David said, is it trivial in your sight to become the king's son-in-law? Since I am a poor man and lightly esteemed. The servants of Saul reported to him according to these words which David spoke. Saul then said, thus you shall say to David, the king does not desire any dowry except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines to take vengeance on the king's enemies. Now Saul planned to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. When his servants told David these words, it pleased David to become the king's son-in-law. Before the days had expired, David rose up and went, he and his men, and struck down 200 men among the Philistines. Then David brought their foreskins, and they gave them in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. So Saul gave him Michael, his daughter, for a wife. When Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, then Saul was even more afraid of David. Thus Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines went out to battle, and it happened as often as they went out that David behaved himself more wisely than all the servants of Saul. So his name was highly esteemed. Okay. Let's just think through this passage together. Remember, David has God's anointing. David will be king. It's going to happen. David is God's choice. But along the way, God is going to test this young man. He's going to put him through the fire. He's going to seek to refine him. Because God's choice will stand. Saul's not going to be able to stop David's ascension. And more importantly, Saul's not going to be able to stop God's plan for what he wants to accomplish. I say that because there are times and seasons in our life when we know that God is calling us to a, for a specific purpose, to a specific thing. And I just want to remind you it's not going to be easy. There are going to be times it's going to be really challenging. There are going to be times that you're going to be on your knees questioning, God, is this your will? Because everything inside of us in our flesh wants to run away from trouble, from pain, from suffering. And so we need to be reminded if God is sovereign, and he is, when he calls us and moves us into positions to use us for his glory, he's going to give us everything that we need for that plan to come to pass. It's in this backdrop that we're beginning to see this downward spiral. And really, as I said last week, for the next years of David's life, where he's going to be running running to spare his life. And if you've read through 1 Samuel, just as a reminder, there are going to be some crazy things that we're going to look at. 
David isn't perfect in all of his actions. But God's purposes will stand. Nothing will change those plans. Now, verse 17 picks up shortly after David received a demotion. And I don't know how long he was in the position, but right after David slays the giant, David is elevated where he is overseeing the mighty men of valor of Israel. And as David is going about the countryside, we read last week that there was a song by the women that were being sung. Saul was slain his thousands, David his ten thousands. And Saul heard that song, and he, he heard in the song, even though it wasn't the intention, that he was being demoted in the eyes and in the affections of the people of Israel. And so he grew jealous. And in his jealousy, he is now being vengeful. He's becoming this bitter person that God's spirit is not working in. The only way that Saul is really able to function every day is by God's providence, this man David comes in and soothes him with music. Now, shortly after he's elevated, Saul demotes him. He knows that he can't get rid of him altogether because the people of Israel know who David is now as the giant killer. And so we read that in this demotion where he was in charge of a thousand people, a thousand soldiers, not all of them, but a thousand That then Saul says to David, here's my older daughter, Merib. Now, Saul's already thrown a spear at him twice. But David comes back in. Because he needs to be faithful to the king. I would be running out of the country. But David had a job to do and he was faithful so he goes to the king. Saul offers his daughter. Now, he should have. Because if you remember, when we looked at the, the battle of David and Goliath, what was one of the rewards for slaying the giant? You would have the king's daughter. It should have happened immediately. But we're going to see in the text that Saul was not a faithful man because originally when the offer was given, whoever slays the giant would, you know, get the the king's daughter and get a bunch of wealth and his family would be able to live tax-free on the land, that Saul didn't keep any of those promises. He's not a stable person. But he comes to David and he says, here's my daughter. Now what's interesting is that in Saul's madness, he's invoking the Lord's name to accomplish Saul's purposes. That's a dangerous place to be. When you are wanting to move forward with your plans and purposes that you know are not for good but are for evil, and you bring the Lord's name into it, It's a dangerous place to be. He says to David, here's my daughter. 
Be a valiant man for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, my hand shall not be against him, but let the hands of the Philistines be against him. Now, he didn't say that to David. That was his thought. That was in his mind as he's talking to David. He's offering his daughter. Why is he offering his daughter? Not to welcome David into the family, but so that he would be, this would be the excuse or the reason why David would go off to battle and be slain by the adversaries. Because Saul can't do it. He can't lift up his hand against David. Why? There's a whole nation of people that are celebrating the great victory that he had just received by slaying the giant. But David said to Saul, who am I? And what is my life for my father's family in Israel? And I should be the king's son-in-law. And David's like, I'm not this person that should be marrying the king's daughter. Who am I? Who's my family? I'm a shepherd boy uh, from this little backwoods town, Bethlehem. Like, I'm not the one that should be marrying your daughter. And so that plan fizzles out. And so Merib is handed off to a drill. problem was there was someone in David's family, I mean in Saul's family, that loved David. Another daughter. Now Michael loved David. What's interesting in in chapter 18, chapter 18 verse 1 began with who loving David? Jonathan. Who's Jonathan? Saul's oldest son. There are two children in Saul's family that come to love David well more than dad. God's hand is on David. God's no longer with Saul. And so the news gets back to the king, right? They told Saul. And it was agreeable. Now there's a, the, the plan can come back on. Saul thought, I will give her to him, and she will be a snare. She'll be the trap. And the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore, Saul said to David, for a second time, you may be my son-in-law today. If I was David, I'd be like, this is strange. How How many daughters do you have? Because do I have to keep denying this and denying this? But for some reason, right, when Michael is offered, David's like, okay, let's talk about this a little more. Saul commanded his servants, speak to David secretly. So David and Saul don't have the conversation, but the king's court has the conversation. And and Saul is planting them in there with the information. And he says to them, when you speak to David, say, behold, the king delights in you and all his servants love you. Now, therefore, become the king's son-in-law. David does need convincing. So Saul's servants, in verse 23, bring the words to David. And David says, is it trivial in your sight to become the king's son-in-law? Like, this is no light matter. Like, king's children just don't trivially marry off. This is a big deal. Even thousands of years ago when this happened. Because there was all, all these kind of relationships and there would have been agreements and, and, and the king would often marry off his children for his benefit and for the kingdom's sake. Well, this is David. I mean, David's important, but he's still just this shepherd boy. He's still very young. 
of age. And David even acknowledges he's a poor man and lightly esteemed. He's poor. He doesn't have a lot. And what does that mean? He couldn't pay the dowry. Because for that kind of arrangement, not just the king marrying off a child, but any time a man married a father's daughter, they would work out an arrangement, a dowry for her to leave. Angela and I are still trying to figure out what Anna's dowry is going to be. (laughs) But it would be like, hey, I'd like to marry your daughter. Here's 10 cows. You know, those kinds of arrangements. David says, I don't have anything to give. And he feels like he's lightly esteemed. You see his humility. He's greatly esteemed in Israel. But David thought of himself as the shepherd boy. The servants of Saul reported to him according to these words which David spoke. Saul said, thus you shall say to David. Now here's the plan. Okay, you don't have a lot. I don't need a lot. All I need is a hundred foreskins. Can I just leave that right there? (laughs) In reality, he is not asking for a lot. For us, yes, that's a lot. In that world, it's not. These would have been the prizes of victory. Much like when certain Native American tribes would scalp humans, you know, in war and bring back the scalp as proof, as a trophy. That's what Saul was asking for. So Saul says, listen, here's the deal. All I need is a hundred foreskins from the Philistines to, to take vengeance on the king's enemies. Now Saul planned to make David fall by the hands of the Philistines. Here's Saul's tragic understanding of not being aware of God's hand being upon David. Saul thinks, okay, you killed the giant. You can't kill a hundred men. He denies the power that is apparent on David. So what does David do? Well, he finds it agreeable. And before the days expired, you know, so there was a certain timeline on this for the offer. Saul is thinking, he's a goner. It's not on me if he dies. The people of Israel will still follow me. They'll be sad over David, but he's not going to make it. So in verse 27, David rose up and went. He and his men, the men, the thousand men that he's in charge of, the warriors that go with him into battle, And they struck down not just a hundred, but two hundred Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, and they gave them in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. So Saul gave him Michael, his daughter, for his wife. Can you imagine the frustration that Saul is feeling? He's probably thinking to himself, what do I have to do? At this point in the story, it's important to remember 
what's going on in Saul's life as the Spirit of the Lord is not with him. Because there is going to be a change that takes place, an awareness in Saul's life that wasn't quite there before. Because at this point, Saul cannot understand why it seems like David continues to succeed in everything that he's doing. It made me think about, I don't know if you've ever seen this movie, um, Amadeus. 1984, it won the best picture. It's the story, it's a biography of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. And in this movie, um, there's a man named, um, let's see, Salieri. And he's a, a musician himself. He's very proud of his work. He thinks he should be very esteemed. Uh, Salieri becomes acquaintances with Mozart and wants to learn from him. And it's very evident very early on that Salieri understands that Mozart is the superior musician, superior composer. Salieri, upon meeting Mozart, realizes that he's superior. In fact, this enrages him because he had just made a bargain with God. And he says to God, if I am a good man, will you allow me to become an extraordinary composer? Then he meets Mozart and he's like, oh man, I'll never be like him. He'll never rise to the same place. And so for the rest of their lives together, Salieri becomes this raging back deal, back room, fuming person that is always tearing down Mozart and his family. He speaks viciously about Mozart whenever he can, humiliating him and his wife. He ruins his reputation with his hatred and his anger. And I just get this picture when we're watching Saul pursuing David with the hatred that he has. Like everyone is beginning to see, you're losing your mind. Like we know you lost your mind, but you're losing your mind. You're out of your mind. How do you hate this man so much for what God is evidently doing in his life? How do we know that? Verse 28, he had to give David his daughter. Verse 28, when Saul saw, right? When Saul saw, and when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David. This is the first time that Saul comes to the awareness, God is with him. He sees God's hand. What do we read? Well, we read that he knows his daughter loves him, and that's going to come into play in the next chapters. But verse 29, then Saul was even more afraid of David. His jealousy, bitterness, hatred is ramping up. Thus Saul was David's enemy continually. And that, that's just an authorial note by the person writing this that's saying, for the rest of the days that David and Saul are going to be alive, Saul is going to have it in for David. And that's really the rest of 1 Samuel. But we read in verse 30. Then the commanders of the Philistines went out to battle, and it happened as often as they went out. So they go out to battle. As often as they went, go out to battle, What? David behaved himself more wisely than all the servants of Saul. So his name was highly esteemed. David just said he's lightly esteemed. But based on his behavior, 
he becomes highly esteemed. What we see is that the, the key to David's success at this point isn't David complaining. Man, I, I would be a mess if this was happening to me. David's not complaining here. He acts and behaves more wisely than everyone else. And God blesses him. And so as we think about this and kind of wrap things up, what's the takeaway for us? Well, the first thing that I want us to see before we move on to the specific application is we need to see the great importance of David's reaction of not complaining to the trouble that he faced. David also isn't guilty of bringing the trouble upon himself. He wasn't critical, nor was he acting sinfully in Saul's presence. I bring that up because sometimes when we are facing adversity and sometimes when we feel like traps are being set all around us, it's because we have been acting foolishly. Can we, ju- can we acknowledge that? That sometimes we get in the way of ourselves by our actions and the troubles that we face in life isn't because outside forces are bringing the trouble in, but it's just because we're acting foolish. And then we look around and say, why doesn't anyone like me? Why is all this trouble falling on me? Well, that's not the other person's problem. That's the heart problem that we have. And it's not just that we're acting foolishly. It's at times we're acting sinfully. And we wonder why there's trouble in our lives. If we're honest, we are often the biggest problems in our own lives. But here's the crazy thing about that, right? That is super hard to self-diagnose. It is very uh, very rare that someone has the self-awareness to look in the mirror and say, you know what, the problem's me. Because we are often very good at justifying our actions. So how do you know if you're getting in the way of yourself? You need to find a trusted person to be in your life like Jonathan was to David. That's how chapter 18 begins. And what does this trusted person do? How do they act? Well, if you ask this person if they've observed any attitudes expressed or actions that have come from selfishness, you don't immediately excuse it and push it away. They're like, oh yeah, no big deal. Or when you have trouble and problems that you've brought on yourself and everyone is out to get you, they're like, yeah, you're right. You shouldn't be harassed and you shouldn't be neglected and shame on them. And you know, they're like tooting your horn as you go out to battle in your mind of how you're going to just obliterate all of your adversaries? No. A Jonathan to a David, uh, having a person that can speak into your life and, and call you into account, helps you to own your own personal actions. 
They help you to see that your motives, the motives that are expressed, come from selfishness that is sin. And they point you to a great Savior that is able to forgive you as you confess it to God. If you're a person that doesn't have a lot of close people in your life, I would just like to ask you to humble yourself before God and ask Him for the grace that you're going to need for the journey that is ahead to allow people to come into your life. It's extremely vulnerable, right? It really is. But if you know that someone loves you and cares for the best for you, God's best for you, then you're going to you're going to be willing to listen to even the worst things that come out of their lips because they know it's for God's good in your life. So that's the one thing we need to consider. The other thing as we close is we see the key to David's success because he behaved himself more wisely than all the servants of Saul. The key is wisdom. Wisdom is simply living out what you know to be true about God. Wisdom is simply living out what you know to be true about God. Notice it requires a foundation of biblical knowledge. Because what we know to be true about God better come from this. And it better not come from Reader's Digest and self-help novels and the latest, greatest New York Times bestseller and what everyone else is doing. It better come from this. And while you have that biblical knowledge, it also requires acting upon that biblical knowledge. Because you can have all of the truth in your brain about what you know to be true about God, but if you do nothing with it, you're like what James says in James chapter 1, as looking in the mirror and looking away and forgetting. And you're a fool if you do that. But I think Ephesians chapter 5 is extremely helpful to kind of put this together. So if you turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 5, we're going to be in the New Testament for just a minute. If you were, if you've been with us as long as I've been here, um, this was the first book that I preached through. And so, you know, I'm going to trust that if you were listening to those sermons, you already know what I'm going to say. 11 years ago, right? Yeah, okay. Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 17. Let me read what Paul writes here. So then, do not be foolish. Or no, let me, verse 15. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And what's interesting about what Paul says in Ephesians 5 about how we should be conducting ourselves, it's really rooted in the main admonition that Paul gives to the church in Ephesus that begins in chapter 4, verse 1. What does he say in chapter 4, verse 1? And this is the great hinge, right, of the book. 
The first three chapters of Ephesians is heavy on doctrine. We have to know who God is. We have to know what is true about him and the church and who we are in Jesus Christ. And as those things are true, now what does Paul say in Ephesians 4.1? Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. That the Christian life is not a sprint. It's a walk. What is walking? It's our consistent everyday action to move around. Listen, if all we did was run through life, we would be exhausted, passed out, laying in a heap. (laughs) I don't care how many marathons you can run. Life is not meant to be run through. We walk in life with the Lord. And this has really been all throughout Ephesians. Right? 4.1, walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Ephesians 5.8, walk as children of light. We walk, as Paul says in Ephesians 5.15, we walk carefully through life. The word carefully that Paul uses means to look around. Not just what is in front of you. Right? When we walk through life, we're not just walking like with our heads down right here. We walk with our head on a swivel looking around at the world that we're living in. Why is that important? It's important because we get to see the world that is happening all around us. And then we walk accordingly to what is coming up, not just right in front of us, but on the horizon. To walk this way, Stan's already laughing. Um, To walk this way is to walk with such wisdom that you're able to see what is ahead and adjust accordingly. People that walk with their heads down run into walls and traps and trips all the time. Verse 17 says that foolish people, and just a word on foolish, the word foolish, it means a person that is ignorant or stupid. Foolish people walk in such a way that they do not make the most of their time. They're caught up in the ways of the world because the days are full of evil. And they're listening to popular theology more than godly theology. I I can't tell you how many times I've watched on social media or blog forums people pose a problem and they'll say, what do I do? And then people will start responding and then they'll like, find the one response that they agree with and they're like, oh yeah, that's the, that's the right thing. That's what I should be doing. Listen, if you're not seeking wisdom from God as revealed in his truth, then you are leading yourself into the path of fools and you are acting stupidly. The great truth is that if we know we lack wisdom, if you need help, If you want to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, if you want to, be careful as you walk, not as unwise men, 
if you want to make most of your time knowing that the days are evil, it's very simple. Ask God for help. James chapter 1, verse 5. James says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, and God will give it generously. It's the coming to Jesus moment in our lives that we desperately need, right? You can be a follower of Jesus and in, in moments in your life act like you're not really following him. But if you get on your knees and are sincere in seeking God's truth for your life, because you know God is not wanting to trip us up. He's not wanting to bring trouble upon us. That if you can die to yourself and your motives and your selfishness and all of the things that go on with all of that and come to Jesus and say, Lord, I know you know what is best for me. Lead me. God will lead you. He will not disappoint you. He will not leave you in the wilderness. He will not leave you with this great cloud hanging over your life. He's very good at taking care of his children. Very good. Very practically in the pursuit of wisdom, we need to be committed to the community of faith and the practice of worship. I don't share this as a self-serving way to make sure that our sanctuary is full every Sunday just for the sake of having people come here. But it's in worship that we express our hearts to God. And you know what's interesting about worship? When you're expressing your hearts to God, you're not thinking about yourself. And as you express your hearts to God in worship, you get the focus off of yourself, and it's in worship that we corporately hear the word of God preached. And together, as the community of faith, we celebrate the goodness of God. One final thought. This whole pursuit of wisdom begins with a person. A person. Very specifically, one person. He is the embodiment of wisdom. And his name is Jesus Christ. In John 14, 6, Jesus said this, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. What's interesting is that word way. He is the way. The word way identifies the proper boundaries and direction of the way of life. He's the only direction that leads to life. Walking in the way of wisdom is to live according to God's will and plan for our lives, and it all begins with following his son, Jesus. If you're here this morning and you're facing a trial in your life or a series of trials in your life and, and you're acknowledging that in trying to figure out what to do, you've made more of a mess of the situations of your life because you've reacted in the flesh, I invite you to lay it all down and come to Jesus. Come to him. He's not going to turn you away. He's not going to be too busy. He is going to be fully focused on helping you. I invite you to lay it all down 
your ways, your dreams, your effort, and come to Jesus because it's in him you will find life. It may not bring immediate relief from the danger that you're facing. I know this. I know this personally. That any time I make a purposed effort to follow Jesus more in my life, it's strange, but there seems to be different kinds of troubles that creep in. And yet Jesus is incredibly faithful. He holds the keys to life and death. David was protected in the midst of great trouble because he walked in the way of wisdom. And let's follow his example and see how God blesses. Let's pray.